During the slave trade, European men not only depended on African women to survive, but also traded with them. Hello, my name is Abna Sewa and welcome to our Akadi Magazine book review series. This series takes books by Ghanaian authors or books about Ghana and deconstructs them according to their content and information value, while hopefully encouraging you to read them too. In this episode, I share my thoughts on the book Daughters of the Trade, Atlantic Slavers and Interracial Marriage on the Gold Coast by Danish historian Professor Pernille Ibsen. A friend recommended this book to me while I was exploring the topic of identity and what it means to be Ghanaian. You can read more about this topic in our seventh magazine issue by joining the free newsletter via academagazine.com. Daughters of the Trade started out as Professor Ibsen's PhD dissertation called Coco's Daughters. Danish men marrying Gaar women in an Atlantic slave trading port in the 18th century. Professor Ibsen went on to publish it in book form in 2015. The book offers rare insight into early slave trading in Usu Accra. It follows five generations of marriages between Gaar women and mainly Scandinavian men and looks at the impact these unions had on perceptions of colour, race and social class. If you've read this book, this summary will hopefully encourage you to share your thoughts with us. And if you haven't, we hope it's been enough to whet your appetite to give it a try. Happy listening. I've read many books that recount the African-American experience of the transatlantic slave trade. But learning what that experience was like on African soil has been a harder narrative to find. That's one of the reasons why I like Daughters of the Trade and found it such a fascinating read. It not only provides valuable perspective on how the international practice of slavery emerged, took root and flourished on African soil, but it also highlights the often overlooked role that Denmark played in enriching its people and country while cementing enduring views on racial hierarchy. Even more important for me is how this book keenly drills down to specific events in Ghana's pre-colonial history, how it identifies particular families the descendants of whom are living in Ghana today, and mentions places familiar to me in Accra and beyond. A lot of the book centres around the commerce and trade networks that evolved in Usu. Usu started out as a bustling fishing town and became a thriving centre for business and the seat of commercial operations for the slave trade. Christiansborg Castle, which is the focal point for a lot of the book, started out as a lodge or fort built by the Swedes in 1652. The fort was one of around 60 that littered Africa's coastlines and were built after kings ruling those areas granted permission to Europeans. According to a blog by Adi Sawyer called The Definitive Story of Jamestown, British Accra, by Nat Nunu Amatefio, Okai Koi, the son of Garmanche Mampong Okai, gave the Swedes permission to build a lodge in Usu. Eight years later, in 1660, according to the book, the Dutch took over ownership, followed by the Danish West India and Guinea Company in 1661. 
Between 1675 and 1683, the fort was briefly in Portuguese hands before becoming a Danish headquarters in 1685. Prior to that, the Danes had their own fort called Frederiksborg in Aquamu-controlled territory in Fetu. The Danes eventually sold Christiansborg Castle onto the British in 1850. Christiansborg Castle was not only the place where enslaved Africans were imprisoned before being shipped off to the Americas and Caribbean, it also housed European officers. It was also the centre for day-to-day trade where Accra locals moved in and out of the castle and was a place where the children of Danish officers and girl women were educated. During the slave trade, European men not only depended on African women to survive, but also traded with them. This quote on page 17 of the book is particularly profound for me, because although we never hear directly from any of the women or girls mentioned in the book, like Lena Kulberg, who married Franz Boy, or Severin Brock, who married Edward Carsten, or Sarah Malm, who married Wolf Joseph Wolf, their collective impact was pivotal. The Danes often came without their wives or were single and went on to marry Gar women who themselves had been the product of unions between Danish men and Gar women. These marriages were classed as distinct from European marriages in name, although they had the hallmarks of both European and African customs embedded within them. Marriages could be performed in a church, thus following Christian values, but also featured elements from Gar, Akan and other groups' customs, such as bride price, knocking and marriage ceremonies. Although these marriages were classed as legal, there could be some dispute about inheritance if, after death, there was no will. So it was not always assumed that the woman was entitled to the European husband's wealth. And in some cases, when men returned to Europe, rarely would their girl wives, they would often marry again as if their African marriages never happened. These Euro-African marriages even had their own name, Kazer, to mean setting up house, and was a name adopted from the Portuguese word for marriage. The Portuguese were the first to start the practice in, in the late 15th century, early 16th, but others, such as the Dutch, the Danes and English, followed suit. As with girl marriages, Danish men were not required to live with their wives. They lived in the castle grounds, but the wives still cooked for them. And it seems that this segregation of genders possibly made it easier for girls to integrate European men into their customs. What I found fascinating about this book was the reference to girls having an interest and willingness to integrate foreign cultures into their own and how in the early days the Danes were willing to follow the marriage and religious customs of the Gar people to cement trading relationships. But once the Danes secured a social and financial foothold from the slave trade in Accra, the need to marry Gar women dwindled as did the need to stay on good terms with the communities in Osu and surrounding areas. This view is captured well in the quote on page 7 that says, Whether Europeans were trading fur in North America, textiles in India, or golden slaves in Africa, they gained access to local trading networks by marrying into local families, 
Such trading marriages became important social and political networks in the history of early modern European trade and colonial expansion. In my view, the shift is significant, and I've often wondered if the people who had at one time been so willing to marry their daughters off to Danish men might have had second thoughts after seeing the physical, psychological and economic destruction it ultimately caused their communities. Gar women were ultimately the ones that nursed ailing Danish men back to health, helped them to acclimatise to the weather, culture and food, acted as their translators and trading partners and even lent them money when they were in need. Professor Ibsen highlights that it was very common for Danish men to die within the first year of their arrival and as a result some women would be married off multiple times in their lifetime. One example is Anna Sophie who had had two marriages before she wed Cornelius Peterson. The girl women who married Danish men had a degree of autonomy that their counterparts who didn't marry outside of their community didn't have. Gar culture means that you inherit from your father's side and in 18th century or so this custom left the children of Danish fathers and Gar mothers in a unique position. Danish men tended to live in the castle grounds rather than with their wives and were not beholden to the rules and customs that a Gar man would be. Women established themselves as entrepreneurs and oftentimes these women through the slave trading connections of their husbands, were able to use the profits from trading European items, such as mirrors, or the spoils of the slave trade, such as rum and guns, to fund the running of their households and families. There is even one instance that Professor Ripson refers to where a king, a gar king, asks for a gar woman's hand in marriage, but is turned down because she has her sights set on a European officer instead. Could that have been because she saw more opportunity marrying outside of her community? Whatever her reason, we later learn just how integrated the slave trade was to daily life for people living in Osu. One of the prominent Gardanish women cited in the book, Sarah Malm, who was married to Wolf Joseph Wolf. She inherited her wealth once he died in 1842. And according to the book, this wealth included property, money, enslaved people and pawns, people who were used as guarantees to pay debt. Professor Ibsen explains that Sarah would rent her pawns and the enslaved people she inherited when the castle needed manpower and as part of the deal she would take half of the workers' wage. That uncomfortable pairing of enslaved with enslaver is something that intensifies as you get deeper into the book. I found it hard to read because, of course, this book is unable to capture the feelings and thoughts of the victims of this gruesome trade, but I've often wondered how people like Sarah would have reconciled being so intertwined with a trade that was vital to her upkeep, but morally repugnant at the same time. According to the book, between 1660 and 1806, three years after the official end of slavery, Danish ships brought about 85,000 enslaved Africans across the Atlantic. This leads me to another rather illuminating aspect of the book and another profound quote on page 133. Human pawning as a credit system was fundamental to the slave trade. 
If not, the slave trade could not have been as systemized as it was. I've often heard it said that although most enslaved Africans sold during the slave trade on the Gold Coast were war captives or had been kidnapped through slave trading, some were the outcome of unpaid debts, thus the human pawning reference. People would provide an item or a family member as a guarantor and if the debt was not paid within a strict timeline, that pawn would become the property of the Danish trader and could be sold to the castle. I understand there was a benefit to having a, a pawn rather than a person, a person that would have spent months subjected to torturous conditions after being captured and forced to walk miles to the coast to be holed up in the castle before being shipped off to the new world. And people who were pawns were likely to be in a better mental and physical condition health-wise. There is one particularly gut-wrenching account in the book which mentions a father who was pawned and ended up in the castle with the prospect of being shipped off to the Americas and Caribbean. When his son found out and tracked his father down to the castle, there was a tearful reunion which resulted in the son opting to take his father's place. We never find out if the debt was repaid, but I wonder how much the son knew of what could before him and I can only imagine what hell that son would have endured if he was never able to escape the castle. Knowing that the inhabitants of Osu and neighbouring areas lived in constant fear of being a pawn or having their community raided would have been immense and would have generated a high level of mistrust. This book captures this most keenly in its reference to demand for guns which was one of the items that fellow African slavers would have had to use to protect themselves from being enslaved. What I found enlightening was learning that in the early part of the trade, social hierarchy and not the colour of your skin were what demarcated one person as free and another as enslaved. But these lines increasingly became blurred as demand for people accelerated. As a result, even African slavers that made a business of selling people were at risk of being traded and as a result bought guns, one of the products of the slave trade, to protect themselves. Ironic, eh? This is something that I'll explore in more detail in the second instalment of this review, along with the importance of proximity to whiteness, Europeanness and Christianity. If you are a subscriber to the Academy Magazine Podcast Club, you can access part two immediately. I'll leave the link in the description box. If you've liked this review or want to share your opinion of this book, do drop us an email at academagazine at gmail.com. And if you're interested in reading more widely around this subject, try these books. A History of Indigenous Slavery in Ghana from the 15th to the 19th century by Akusia Aduma Perbi. The Grand Slave Emporium, Cape Coast Castle, and The British Slave Trade by William St. Clair and the film Gold Coast by Daniel Densick and Kwame Bwedi and read my review of the film I'll leave the links in the description box until next time the music in this piece is exclusively recorded for Miss B Writes and Akadi magazine and is called Infitiasi meaning Genesis in a can 
It is composed by percussionist Eric Uwasu, a.k.a. King Uwasu, in collaboration with producer Nia Tom Sabag. <laughs> 